This is a Clark University podcast. And in the grand scheme of things, this is not a huge problem. That's what makes this conflict fascinating, is all these people putting their names in for a speakership that could last a year at most. We've seen not only Kevin McCarthy, but the the prior uh, Republican speakers had also not lasted all that long. So Republicans are having this big fight over a job that probably a lot of serious politicians would not want to have, given those constraints. Congress was not going to legislate that much anyway. They have one thing they need to do before mid-November, which is to pass a continuing resolution that will keep the government funded through April. The conventional wisdom on those things is that government shutdowns have traditionally hurt Republicans more than Democrats, which means that I think Republicans are likely to find some way to keep the government running. It may shut down for a week or two, but there will be pressure to do something eventually. Certainly it shows that the sort of instability we experienced uh, during the Trump years is not over. It certainly shows that uh, the United States is not a dependable ally despite what Biden has to say. He doesn't have control over a lot of these things. If there are many, any members who did not answer the call of the roll, they may come to the well and vote at this time. The total number of votes cast is 429. It has been a messy month in U.S. politics. After Kevin McCarthy was ousted from his position as House Speaker earlier this month, three other House Republicans have failed to garner enough support to assume the role. Weeks of uncertainty ended Wednesday when Mike Johnson of Louisiana was elected Speaker. The Honorable Mike Johnson of the state of Louisiana, having received a majority of the votes cast, is duly elected Speaker of the House of Representatives for the 118th Congress. I'm Melissa Hansen, a producer in Clark's communications office, And this is Challenge Change. Political science professor Robert Boatwright says the emerging story is that Republicans are not unified behind one leader, and that the general public is becoming unusually involved in the process of electing a House Speaker. So a lot of these folks, it's it's in their interest to keep behaving the way that they're behaving. It's not in the interest of their party. A different kind of leader could get them to all get along. This is kind of the democratic model. Nancy Pelosi was a very, very liberal Democrat, you know, about as left-wingy as you can get for a U.S. congressional district. But as speaker, she didn't govern that way. Pelosi did a tremendous job in keeping Democrats in line during her speakership. Without a speaker, the House cannot organize, so the speaker determines what the committee arrangements will be doesn't officially determine what goes to the floor, but plays a large role in sort of working with the party to determine what legislation gets voted on. It's also hard to be a speaker of a large caucus because you have to figure out who you can lose on particular votes. This political tension unfolds in Washington as students in Roberts' classes are learning about the history and nuances of politics in America. I'm teaching the introductory American politics class. That's an opportunity for students who really don't have a whole lot of context in any of this stuff to to get their impressions. And I'm teaching a class on American political thought. It has been useful to teach right now because you get this sense reading stuff from the 1830s or 1870s. You get these writers talking about the instability of the American political system in a way that sounds, sounds very current. 
maybe that's reassuring, right? There were these things that people have always, you know, worried that our government was going to collapse. But on the other hand, it does uh, suggest that, you know, there, there are problems that, that have existed for a long time that are really coming to a head. We spent a lot of time on the progressive era in pretty much all of my classes. And the reason for that is that the politics of the late 19th century were similar to ours in a lot of ways. We had a very polarized government. We had a Congress that in order to function had to really centralize power in the speaker. The speaker being overthrown right, in 1909. So there are many uh, parallels from the late 19th century. And you can make the case that the progressive era that followed fixed some of those problems. It certainly led to a decline in polarization. Uh, it was a movement that really split the Republican Party and to an extent the Democratic Party as well and created the possibility for a lot of bipartisan legislating. So how did we get here? There are clear parallels that date to the middle of the 20th century. It's easy to tell a story that takes this back to the Obama years, to the Clinton years, for that matter, to like the 1960s, just you know, Republicans winning the votes of white Southerners. My sense is that the really big pivot in the Republican Party happened around the 2010 election. The message from voters across the country was clearer than ever this morning. Incumbents and establishment candidates, beware. Tea Party Americans, you're winning. You're turning this country's political landscape upside down and inside out. With the economy still struggling and Obama policies under attack, all the Democrats here, even Russ Feingold, find themselves facing a tougher political environment. The 2010 midterm, Republicans picked up a large number of seats. In the process of doing that, they created a relatively durable minority of voters in the electorate in Republican primaries, a relatively durable number of Republican members of Congress who were just against the establishment without any particular agenda. So the Tea Party was a manifestation of that. The Tea Party story, of course, had to do with uh, being you know, strictly adhering to the Constitution, limiting spending, all that sort of stuff. That sort of idea mutated over the course of the 2010s into a story about immigration, a story about education, a story about all sorts of different things. But what was consistent there was this sort of sense among a number of Republican voters that their own party leaders were not on their side. And I think there had been a number of Republicans elected to office earlier who had talked like this. Um, but this was sort of in the pre-social pre media era, pre-internet era, and so on. And so these folks were effectively you know, marginalized to their own districts. And this became a message that every Republican member of Congress all of a sudden had the sense that a quarter of his or her own party in their own district was just going to be against them. Right, they were just against government. And so I think that's made Republicans very skittish about their own voters, right? They don't trust their own voters. They don't really have a sense that they're representing these folks. They're scared of them because they can certainly do something to them, but they don't really know who these people are, how to, how to talk to them, how to reason with them. So that's created a sort of a very unusual dynamic in the party. 
we kind of have a general sense of what the problem is, but I think a lot of the solutions that people are talking about are really inadequate. We're not at a point where we're talking about the scale of change that we would need to address this. We wanted to know what Robert was most concerned about with the current state of Congress. I think some of the most consequential features of what's going on here are things that are not particular to who wins, who loses uh, in the short run. They're, they're really about how Americans understand Congress, understand the role of the speaker. They're certainly changing what people expect from the congressional leadership in a way that will be difficult for the Republicans to, uh, to undo, maybe difficult for Democrats to undo when they have power as well. They've really made it into something that ends your career, right? Kevin McCarthy is, he might as well leave Congress. We saw this again with Paul Ryan and John Boehner. They became speaker, they became disenchanted, and then they left, right? There was nothing else for them to do. So it's unclear why an ambitious Republican would want to be speaker of the House anymore. Nancy Pelosi came into the speakership after waiting her turn for a couple decades. Uh, prior to her, uh, Richard Gephardt, Tom Foley, these were people who had worked their way towards the speakership acquired the connections that it takes to be a speaker, acquired the skills, watched other people do the job. And so this is, this is not necessarily possible anymore. So what's really significant here, people who wanted to be speaker have really campaigned to the public. Uh, Jim Jordan's campaign for speaker was really unprecedented. The idea that once he was nominated by the caucus, the Republicans would go home and the Steve Bannon and other sort of Republican social media figures would mobilize voters to put pressure on the moderates to threaten them with primary challenges. You know, the idea that the public would play a role not only in figuring out who they thought was a good candidate, but in going after people who didn't agree with them is, is really pretty remarkable. Um, uh, the skills it takes to be a speaker have to do with raising money, <laughs> seeking consensus among uh, your members, trying to find a way to placate the different factions. The, the public shouldn't be involved, but now that the public really has been, I think it will be difficult in the future for decisions like this to be made without some sort of public campaign. For years, the narrative was that Democrats struggled to organize behind one unifying thread like their Republican counterparts. The history unfolding now illustrates a different dynamic among Republicans, one that Robert thinks could cause the party to lose its majority. This whole idea that I think people had for some of the Trump years that the Republican Party would snap back to being kind of what it was, it's, it's just not possible anymore. And so that is, that's really a sign that we're in for a prolonged period of political chaos. Democracy requires two political parties, right? That parties have to be willing to lose. And so a lot of the dynamic we've seen in the Republican Party is that Republicans have not made the adaptations that they necessarily should in order to win a majority because a lot of them are comfortable, you know, either either being in the minority or in trying to do what they can to tilt the playing field to, to win despite having a minority of the vote. Republicans right now are busy trying to send a message to each other, right? right? Trying to get people in line, trying to punish people who are not, not willing to support the party. America is polarized enough that uh, certainly a Republican candidate could win, as Trump did, with a minority of the popular vote, or could be the beneficiary of some sort of economic downturn or whatever. 
But even if that happens, it's not clear that they would lead the party. It's not clear that Republicans in Congress are prepared to listen to any particular message from whoever their presidential candidate might be or follow through on some sort of plans. Biden is certainly not as visible or as charismatic a public figure as Trump was, uh, or as, for that matter, Barack Obama was, but he plays the role of the leader of a party. And so Republicans could certainly elect somebody to the presidency, but it's not clear that that person would be able to tell Republicans in Congress what they, what they ought to do, right, to lead the party in any coherent way. Primary elections are one of Robert's areas of expertise. He has a book on the topic publishing in May. He says there's a correlation between primaries and the current turmoil in Congress. We've tinkered with primaries effectively for a century, and it's not clear that that many of these changes make a huge difference. If we were to have some way of radically increasing primary turnout, right, instead of going from, say, 20 to 25 percent, which is what most changes to primaries do, if we were able to find a way to concentrate primaries on the same day or cluster them in a very small number of days, then we could perhaps see turnout of like 60, 70 percent of the electorate as we do in presidential years. Maybe that would make a difference. It would certainly change American politics because a lot of people who don't pay any attention to elections would all of a sudden start voting in primaries. The voters would be more representative of the electorate. Candidates would likely have to campaign to all of the voters instead of merely trying to mobilize their supporters. So it could work, but you know, even, even if it doesn't, right, that's is an example of the scale of the problem, right? We have to rethink the scale of the reforms that we want to implement and stop wasting our time looking at, I think, relatively small changes. To learn more about political science at Clark, visit clarku.edu slash political science. Challenge Change is produced by Andrew Hart and Melissa Hansen for Clark University. Find other episodes wherever you listen to podcasts. One, two, three. Clark! <laughs>